Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I use she or they pronouns. And this episode, I'm actually recording immediately after the previous episode with Simon, because as soon as we got off the call, we talked about all of these other things that um, that are worth talking about. And there's just so much to all of this that we thought it might be worth doing a second episode about. You might be hearing this. I don't know when you're going to hear this as compared to the other part. But... Anyway, Live Like the World is Dying is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. Ta-da! Dude. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share a heart-to-heart conversation. New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network. Okay, if you could introduce yourself with your your name, your pronouns, and then just a real brief overview for people who didn't listen to the the first interview we just did with you about the the kind of work you do and what your specialization is. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on again. Um, My name is Simon Apostle. I'm a restoration ecologist, uh, and I've been working in Oregon, Washington, and kind of across the Pacific Northwest for the last 10 or so years. Um, uh, and, uh, most of my work has, has focused on reforestation, but, um, also just general, uh, natural resource management and, and ecological restoration. So we were talking about, um, you, you had, you had ideas about what people who have access to some, you know, maybe homestead style size of land or land project or, or even like maybe even smaller scale than that about what people can do besides just reforestation. Um, what is involved in restoration and using that to mitigate whether climate change or other problems ecologically? Yeah. So one of the things that, that, um, in, in our field, we've been, um, looking at quite a bit, uh, is how do certain keystone organisms really affect the landscape? And, and one of, one of the biggest ones, not just in size, they get pretty large though, is, uh, is the North American beaver, um, which, and this is true across North America. Um, and, um, beaver, uh, are a critical component of, of ecosystems. Um, and they do that by, by doing what we know they do by building dams, um, and altering hydrology, um, in a way that creates habitat. It creates diversity. It, um, uh, retains water in a landscape by by damming damming streams up and creating new channels and and all of all of these things um, and so reintroduction of beavers or by mimicking the processes that beavers um, create you can you can do a lot um, for the land and, and also potentially make it work better for you because you know as we face climate change water retention is is kind of one of our biggest issues 
So you're telling people that they should build dams and cut trees. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. If you want to think like a beaver, you should build a dam. Uh, if you want to use it for hydroelectric purposes, you can do that. And then, yeah, of course, cut down trees. No, it, it's, a really, <laughs> it's a really interesting parallel, right? Because beavers kind of act like us, you know? Um, and, and they do all these things that, that we know are, especially in the Pacific Northwest, um, know are, are bad. We know that, that the dams, the hydroelectric dams are, are a massive problem for salmon and for other organisms and disrupting natural, natural water flows and, and creating barriers. And of course, cutting down trees is a, a thing we all know is, um, we don't do well. <laughs> um, but, uh, beaver do things in a way that that the you know ecosystem around them has adapted to do and to and to to uh interact with um so a beaver dam well first of all the scale is different right it's not going to be across the columbia river it's across a stream a, a a low gradient side channel something like that and a beaver dam is porous it has water cascading over it a fish can jump over it um it, it uh, is complex. You know, there's a pond behind it and there's, there's wetlands on the margins and there's channels flowing around it that they may not have gotten to damming yet. And that complexity is, is critical, right? Like it's, it's the taking of a, a simple stream channel and, and making it into something really complicated and, uh, with little niches for all these different organisms. And, and it can work for, um, for humans too, um, you know, by, by recharging groundwater, by retaining water on a landscape for longer, you get, you get aquifer recharge, you get, um, you know, trees surrounding that area, maybe growing a little bit better, all of these things that are, that are directly valuable to us. So that's the kind of like microclimate stuff of making your area, um, while well, you're like, say your wells will go dry slower and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, water retention in landscapes is, is so important, you know, as, as we like face climate change, right. It's, it's, um, and, and some of that is affected by, by climate change directly and just through evaporation, but also as you get precipitation changing from, from snow to, uh, to rainfall, you know, through a larger portion of the year in a lot of systems. Um, that means that the water's not coming down as a trickle of snow melt throughout the year. It's coming down, you know, in, in a single rain event, um, and there's none left in the summer. And beaver are one of the the organisms that can help counteract that by um, by retaining that water in the in the smaller streams and then letting it out as a slower trickle. That's so wild that 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 something at that small of a scale has an impact. I feel like that's like something that. I often forget about because as much as I'm like, Oh, I like bottom up organizations and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, always sometimes forget that something as simple as like blocking a Creek can have an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's the aggregate effect, right. Too. It's, it's all of, it's every little side channel in a, especially if you talk about in a temperate region, like the, the Northeast in the U S or the Northwest um, where you have lots and lots of little creeks. Um, and historically there were probably beaver populations on every single one of those. Um, then of course we're all trapped out, um, you know, as, as European trappers, um, moved into those landscapes. What it, so. is it, it is a question I feel like I should have learned in middle school or something, but why do beavers build dams? Like what's in it for them? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, right? Um, for them, I think, I'll, and, and, and actually this is like, 
a really interesting evolutionary question because um, uh, old world beavers, um, a, a European, like super similar species. I don't even know how different they are genetically. I'm, I'm sure a little bit, but they don't build dams. They just burrow into into dens on the bank, as as far as I'm aware. Huh. Um, but but beavers build dams largely to create more habitat for themselves. They're safe from predators underwater. The entrances to their lodges are underwater, so they'll build their big lodge and then they'll swim underwater to an entrance and then inside the lodge it'll be back up in the air so that they're safe. Um, they also like to eat willows and willows like to grow in wetlands. And so you flood out an area that was a canyon, you create more sediment deposits, you flood into the flat areas, you're going to grow more of these kind of fast growing hardwoods that they like to eat. So it's about creating more habitat for themselves. You know, in, in a way you can think about them as like they're, they're creating their shelter and they're also like farming the things that they like to eat by, by flooding. No, no, no. Only humans do that. Um, <laughs> that's cool. That's yeah. I'm like, now I'm like, I wonder if we should, should have beaver where I, you know, I, I live on this, this Creek and you know, there's willows around and things like that. Um, yeah, no, huh? Okay. And so, so you're saying, so what does the water retention do in terms of mitigating the effects of, of climate change and, and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like we talked about, just, just holding that water in, in the landscape, letting it permeate into the soil, but also slowing that release um, through the creek, just to say that's beneficial to so many organisms, right? Because it allows water flow through a longer period of the year. You know, a big flush of water, a big flood can be a lot less useful than a, a steady trickle in a lot of cases. Can I, can I, can I selfishly ask you about reforesting willows and like, is that a useful, you know, I, I guess, as I was saying, I, I live on a creek that floods and we've talked about, you know, people talk about willows being very good plants for, you know, sucking up water or whatever, but we don't believe it changes the way that water flows across the land or anything like that, um, but mm-hmm. might help like reinforce banks or because most of your work is riparian specifically, right? What is, what are you doing when you're reforesting a, a riparian area and how can I selfishly do that myself? That's going to depend on the situation, right? But, but a lot of what we're doing um, when we focus on riparian areas is, is because they're important to so many species, right? And so they're, they're rare and critical. And so the benefits that you have by, by reforesting a riparian area, you have shade over the stream, you know, you, you're, you're cooling the water temperature. Um, which reduces evaporation. It, it helps the organisms within the stream. Um, in terms of planting willows, I mean, the, the, one of the best things about willows is that they're one of the easiest things to plant and grow, right? Um, they're adapted to break off in flooding. Um, so you have twigs and stems and branches will just break off. And any single one of those can um, land on a bank of mud and sprout and turn into a new tree. Um, so they have this, this vegetative adaptation that's a hormone that allows them to root from from any given node you know but a, and a node being a, a part on the plant that can turn into a leaf or a branch uh, or in the case of a willow a root even if it was you know a branch from the top of the tree um, and anyone who's who's you know propagated cuttings and stuff knows that some plants have that that hormone and particularly willows do and you can stick a willow branch in your cuttings of some other some other tree or shrub and they'll root more easily um, so, so a lot of times what we'll do in a riparian area is just, um, 
harvest willow cuttings either locally if there's a good source or bring them in from somewhere nearby or you know from from a nursery uh, and just plant those basically sticks straight in the ground it looks super weird because it just looks like we planted a bunch of two or three foot sticks in the ground uh, super dense in most areas of North America you would have we might be planting 2,000 stems an acre uh, of, of willows and, and kind of related riparian shrubs. And, uh, you know, if, if conditions are right, you, you will um, get a, a pretty dense willow stand within a few years. Do you then go, let's say for some, you had a homestead and there was a dense stand of willows. Mm-hmm. Do you then go and like thin it out so that there's, you know, so each tree, like I know that um, when dealing with like a, you know, a monoculture of young pines, sometimes you have to thin it out in order to make them grow healthier. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to depend, you know, where you are, but, but probably not. Um, they, you know, their life cycle is such that they are going to live a much shorter period of time and they grow in these big, thick, dense stands that all grow up at once. Um, because there was some big flood that brought in a bunch of new clean sediment and it wiped out all the old ones. And then the new branches and seeds landed and you grow a thick forest and they'll kind of self thin. And actually that's those standing dead trees and fallen dead trees are, are habitat features in themselves. You know, woodpeckers like them, salamanders like the logs on the ground, so do turtles, you know, things like that. So um, generally speaking, no, I mean, we'll, we'll do things like weed control to reduce competition when they're young. Um, but, uh, but their, their growth cycle is such that they're, they're a, di- a big disturbance and then they grow and then everything gets wiped out in a stand and then they grow again in, in, in most systems. And I guess to go back to what you were talking about earlier, you, you said you wanted to talk about bringing back beaver. How do, what does that look mm-hmm. like? How do, how do people do that? Yeah. I mean, some, and sometimes it's as simple as, you know, you have county highway departments and things that, you know, beaver, beaver like to build dams and they like to build dams in, in a roadside ditch next to a highway. So these, these county highway departments will trap and kill the beaver. And so if you can work with them to say, no, trap and release it. And, and in some cases, some counties will actually say, you can say, Hey, we'd be okay with you releasing them on our property instead of killing them. And they may be a they may do that for you. Um, the other way to do it is kind of, kind of, and it depends on if they're there, um, but to, to build it and they will come. So you plant willows on a stream, you know, it, it, eventually they might find it if they're nearby. They, they, they roam pretty far. Um, and the other thing that you can do is even if you don't have beavers is to start to kind of mimic those, those processes that beavers create by basically building your own, um, your own dams. Um, that are that are functionally similar to a beaver dam, and and beavers will often find those too, and and start to build and add to them. That's cool. Um, we actually we have a whole technical term. They're called BDAs, which uh, um, just means beaver dam analog. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's a really cool um, sort of growing uh, niche in 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 my field because it's they're low tech, right? It's it's you're putting a bunch of posts in the river and and put it piling a bunch of brush behind them, so water kind of dams up, but also flows through and, and anyone can do it. You know, you don't need an engineering degree. You don't need a forestry degree. You can just kind of, kind of do it. Aren't, aren't like riparian areas, creeks and, and things like that, like fairly heavily controlled, like, like can't you get in, can't you get in some trouble for messing with a creek's flow? Yeah. I mean, if you're doing something that's, you know, a 
Yes, in the United States, uh, and, and it, there's stronger rules depending on the state that you're in. Um, there's wetlands and waters rules that, that have to do with the Clean Water Act. Um, a lot of these were just kind of greatly diminished by the Trump administration. So uh, you're safer there on a lot of ephemeral streams, um, and it's going to depend on your state. But generally speaking, I mean, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. Um, but, you know, if you're doing a restoration activity, on, we're talking a small stream, a small ephemeral stream on a piece of ground that you own, these kinds of activities are, are fine. You're really talking about, okay, am I bringing in fill? Am I bringing in equipment? Am I, you know, dumping dirt? Am I building a permanent dam that really is like easily identifiable as like a, like an irrigation dam or something like that? That's where you need to get into the, the permitting world. And now I'm just trying to figure out whether I can do micro hydro on a beaver dam, um, like without actually you know, blocking it. <laughs> that you would probably technically need a permit for in the in the yeah. world we live in, but I, I won't. I won't tell. <laughs> I <don't> appreciate it. <laughs> Neither should any of you. I'm not actually. I looked into a fair amount of <laughs> micro hydro, and um, it's just not. Even though I have running water on, on on our property, it's it's not the right move for us, um, which is a shame because microhydro where you don't actually block the creek i'm sure it has ecological impacts yeah. um but it doesn't block the creek i don't know <laughs> no there, there's been there's been studies about you know replacing the columbia river dams with with things like that it's like they're less micro i'm sure because of the scale but you know things that just basically sit on the side of the river instead of blocking the whole thing that seems so i now i wonder why we didn't do that in the first place well it was <laughs> You do. I think you probably get more power if you dam the whole river. Um, and uh, yeah, different time, I guess. Yeah, I, I thought um, you know it'd be interesting to kind of like think about just because your initial question kind of got me thinking about like how do we we make forests work for us? Um, and uh, you know that that can touch on like like um, you know how indigenous groups interacted with the forest in, in places that I know things like that. But like, what are, you know, kind of what are some like the other human benefits and um, to forests? So we're still kind of having this conversation about reforestation and, and the advantages of it. And besides just water retention and besides, you know, the cooling effect and things like that, what are, why reforestation? Like, tell me, tell me more about what's cool about reforestation. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think one of the things that, that we're kind of slowly realizing is like all of the the side benefits um, that the forests provide us and, and not, we've already talked about, you know, cooling effects and shading and things like that. But, um, you know, there can also be like a fair amount of um, food production from a diverse forest. Um, there's been a really interesting uh, set of research that was done um, in coastal British Columbia, um, where they, they found these, these pockets of forests where you didn't have a closed canopy, you had this kind of diverse patchwork and um, near historic Coast Salish village sites, we have these, uh, or, or still have these, essentially what been called food forests. Um, so this kind of diverse array of, of fruiting species like crab apples and cranberries and huckleberries and, and things like that, um, that now we know were, were managed by people. Um, so it's something that we would kind of recognize as something somewhere between like like a European conception of agriculture and uh, and, a, and just a, a natural quote-unquote natural forest uh with um with no human impacts which of course there were but but regardless you know it there there's ways to kind of 
create something that's diverse and and works for plants and animals um, while also working for you. And I, I think food production is one of those. And, and creating um, diversity in a stand is is one of the ways to do that. So instead of thinking about we have this stand of trees and we want it all to be as old as possible, well, what if there's a little clearing over here, you know, which would could mimic a natural process. You have windfall, you know, knocking a few trees over. And then what are the things that come up in that clearing? It might be some of those early seral plants. Some of them are fruiting. Some of them are are useful for other purposes or, you know, and so you can manage that, that stand, that clearing um, in, in ways that, that work for people. You know, it, it's like, it's like reframing how we think about agriculture and also how we think about forestry. We think about forestry as producing, as producing lumber. And we think about agriculture as producing things that we eat, you know, and, and they don't mix. They're just different things, but of course, you know, they're all just plants. Yeah, I mean, we would probably need to have an entirely different economic system in order to <laughs> take advantage of, you know, decentralized uh, food production like that, which obviously I'm in favor of a completely different economic system. So that sounds good to me. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that's mostly useful for people who are are working, who have access to like a land project and things like that. Is this mm-hmm. information that people can use to you know, influence county decisions about how to do things? Like how much control are people able to exert either within the existing system or outside of it on, on reforestation? Yeah. One of the biggest issues is, is the lack of control that people who don't have a, a sort of like legal and economic stake in these things, you know, directly, um, have in some cases, um, you know, you talk about a federal agency planning a project and and they're going to say, oh, we're doing community involvement. We're going to talk to our neighbors. Well, their neighbors might be, you know, a farmer who may even be a local farmer, but owns, you know, a significant amount of land and is not really representative of, of maybe your rural community's mm-hmm. um, actual income and wealth distribution, uh, or their neighbor may, may even be an industrial timber company. Um, right. But, uh, a lot of these these projects have, you know, if they're if they're federally funded, they have public comment periods. They have um, all these things that are written into law that are that are supposed to um, allow for community engagement, and sometimes are not so easily accessible. Um, but but you can get together with some people and watch out for things like there's going to be a forest thinning project, and we want input on this. We we want to say, hey, you need to consider you know, our use, like our group wants to do mushroom foraging in this area and we're concerned that you're going to disturb this or we want you to to think about how your project design affects that, you know, things of that nature. Um, And and a lot of times nobody really comments on these these projects. So a little bit of of public comment, a little bit of input um, can actually really sway land managers' decisions. I know when I've been in that situation... You know, hearing from five people that are all saying the same thing uh, is a big group of people because usually no one says anything. Right. Um, so uh, I think you can have a difference and make a difference. And that's going to depend on the, the sort of willingness and adaptability of, of people in positions of power, like with all things. But but usually these things just kind of get ignored. So. Yeah, one of the things. One of the talking points when I did more more forest defense out west, one of the main talking points would 
would be. And, you know, most of us weren't, we didn't really care about what, what was good for the economy. Uh, we cared about what was good for, you know, the values that we held about biodiversity and, and things like that. But one of the things we would talk about is that you actually literally make more, like it, it does more for the local economy by and large to leave the national forest alone and not run the national forest timber sale program. And it, again, this is at least as, as I understood it at the time. And that like most of the timber sale program was like run at a loss because they're basically subsidizing all of the costs of these timber companies to come in and clear cut, you know, quote unquote, our forests within a colonial system, whatever that means. But these public lands, um, you know, it, I didn't realize when I was a kid that the national forests were huge chunks of them are regularly clear cut. And they're on some ways like managed just like another timber farm. And, and there, there is a little bit more say that people are able to have. And one of the things that I liked about, you know, working with groups like Earth First was that we were very every tool in the toolbox and that absolutely included public comment periods and showing up to, you know, city council meetings in these small towns and things like that. And, and working with people who are from those small towns, usually, you know, basically we would come in to support local organizing and then also, um, you know, direct action and blocking people from logging. Uh, it hasn't, it doesn't always work. Right. But it, it worked more times than I expected to basically come in and, and say, you know, the tree sit doesn't sit on every tree that they're going to cut. The tree sit sits on, where they want to build a road, right? And you block access long enough either to make it just so expensive that it stops being worth it for them or more likely it's part of a larger strategy where you're also like suing them in the courts. Like often they do this thing where they can, they're allowed to clear cut into, you're you're suing them to say you can't clear cut and then they're allowed to, if there's no injunction, they can do so while the, you know, while court is, is happening. So they can be like, well, it doesn't matter now, we already did it. And so sometimes you're just literally stopping them while you make larger change, which now that I think about it, feels like a larger metaphor for how so much of this is about preserving what we can while we try to make these larger changes, while we try to change the economic systems that we live under and things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's definitely true. And, and I I think just being, being a stick in the mud sometimes just, just, being loud and in as many ways as you can, uh, you can, you can think, um, can be really beneficial. One, one issue, um, kind of jumping on the like federal logging thing that, that, that is a problem, uh, is that, um, you, you can have kind of greenwashing of timber sales. Sometimes, you know, you look at like post fire salvage logging that is really not ecologically justified, right. You know, well, we need to clear out the trees because then we'll have room for the new trees to grow. It's like, well, no, you know, fire is natural and actually standing dead trees are an entirely separate and unique habitat type. And they're an important thing to protect, you know, and, and, uh, similarly we need to thin forests because we've, we've re- repressed fire for so long and, and we need to make them, uh, we need to reintroduce fire to the landscape, but sometimes, you know, these projects kind of, there will be people who insert themselves in them with ulterior motives, right? So it no longer becomes about it's an ecologically justified we're we're thinning out the young trees to save the health of the other ones. It's like, well, actually, maybe we should take some of the big ones too. You know, there's probably too many of them. You know, it's like it. Um, so just being being active and and paying attention to when those things are happening um, 
you can make a pretty big difference over a pretty large um, chunk of ground. Um, you know, one of the issues that we have here is uh, that I think I mentioned last time is is how much of our our uh, forests are privately owned, though, right? And 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 more and more that ownership is not only private, um, you know, quote unquote, but but owned by investment firms um, and entities that not only want to extract profit, but they want to extract profit quickly. So they've reduced the length of time between harvest uh, from something like 80 years. And, you know, an 80 year old forest has a lot of habitat value or a 50 year old forest does to now being maybe 50 or sometimes even 30, you know, 30 year old trees, which basically just looks like a plantation, you know, and, and they'll harvest and then they sell the land again. And it's just this ongoing cycle of making sure that the quarterly returns are up. So the stock prices are up. And, you know, that's, that's something that really needs to be actively fought in, in my region. Yeah. And then I'm under the impression that you can only have these cycles where you remove all the biomass every 30 or 80 years. You can only do that so many times before you end up with no biomass left and you get desertification. Is that, is that the case? Yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly, we, we've undergone massive changes to soil structure in ways that we don't understand um, in, in forests in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, and definitely it's that, that, that loss of biomass and, and there's there's certain types of biomass that only big trees can really provide. There's mm-hmm. like the, something called like brown cubicle rot, <laughs> which okay. isn't a very a very <laughs> romantic name, but um, <laughs> or there's other terms for it. But basically, it's like if if you've ever been in the Pacific Northwest and you've seen like a a big nurse log on the ground, which is we call like a tree that's fallen on the ground and has other trees and plants growing out of it. It's it's providing an entirely unique set of soil conditions, and you you crumble that apart, and it's got these like cavities and square pieces and it's often very brown or bright orange and um, that that type of biomass in the soil is just it's just a completely different entity than than the bare mineral soil Um, and and certainly you start to reduce the health of the trees that grow when you when you keep removing that biomass and of course it provides carbon storage too Um, so uh, you know what Last year in Oregon in 2020, um, <laughs> this year we had record-breaking heat waves, and last year we had record-breaking wildfires on the west side of the Cascades. Which, you know, you're familiar with Oregon, of course, but for people that aren't, that's like that's the wet side, right? That's when people think about Oregon and big trees and and things like that. That's that's kind of what they're envisioning. Um, but we had these fires raging through the west side. They ended up burning like two percent of the land area of the state. God. Um, in, in one month. And uh, a lot of those burns were on these these private tree farms with these young trees that are just matchsticks. They're stressed by drought because they don't have the organic matter in the soil to retain moisture. And um, and uh, they just, they, they burned completely. A lot of these areas, you know, 100% tree mortality. Um, so <laughs> um, there's a... Uh, you can you can't do it forever but but they you know they don't care that they that you can't do it forever which i guess is like kind of yet another example of like the whole climate preparedness and and mitigating the effects of climate change involves stopping all of this treating the earth just like a sit a set of resources to extract you know yeah yeah and it's not you know it's not like I mean, we use wood products, right? But it's just how do we change our relationship to to do that in a way that uh, 
that works for us in the present and will also work for future generations. I'm, I'm working on a forest management plan right now for a property for a reserve, um, but that will allow timber harvest. And it's, you know, it was purchased from Weyerhaeuser. It's 1300 acres. Um, and a lot of it was logged fairly recently before they sold it because they kind of extracted the value that they could. Right. And it's thinking about, okay, well, it's the trees are too dense. We're going to need to thin them. What, what stage do we thin them? You know, that we can actually extract some value and that value goes into the local economy and we're creating timber products, but we're not, but we're, we're sort of mimicking the natural cycles in order to get to a place where in a couple hundred years, it's a mature old growth forest, right? And at that point, like, I don't need to consider what the economy is like in 100 or 200 years. I don't need to consider what we need out of forest products. But like, we can make it work for us in the present by, by clearing little, little clearings and creating, you know, have like diversity areas that, that are similar to those clearings that I talked about before, or, or selectively thinning, you know, the weaker trees and, and creating a more open canopy that, that mimics those natural systems, but also, um, allows for economic activity or for just wood products that we, we use in our life, our lives. Um, and I, I really like that because it's, it's, it's that dichotomy of like, what do we need now? But, but how can we plan for a future that's unknowable to us? Um, but we do know that, that we want old growth forests again someday for, for future generations. Yeah. And I, I like it because it's, it's acknowledging that it's like, well, we do want to use wood to build our houses or whatever, you know, um, there's in many climates, that's the best way to do it. And most of us prefer to live in shelter and things like that, you know, <laughs> and it's just a, yeah. and people have this like, okay, well, since clear cutting, you know, on massive scale is bad and looking at the earth as a series of resources is bad. Therefore we have to feel guilty about using like, you know, interacting with the earth and, and that also doesn't do us any good one because guilt-based organizing is garbage, but it's also just like, it's not, it's, it's a babies and bathwater problem. You know, it's, it's a, we do, we are animals and animals use well other animals and, and nature to, to do the things we want to do. I remember I'm trying to, you know, we were trying to protect this forest in Southern Oregon and it was, uh, it had actually been burned and it was a salvage, it was old growth forest that had been burned on public land and none of the locals would log it because everyone knew it was bad. So there was like all of these out of state loggers, which is funny because then, you know, of course we would get accused of being outside agitators or whatever. And, you know, I remember one of the times some loggers got past one of our blockades and, you know, people are like yelling at them and, and the loggers are like, well, what do you do for a living? You know? And I was like, well, I'm a landscaper. And the person next to me is like, well, I'm a logger. You know, it's like, like you, you can be a logger. Like if you're, you can be a person who turns trees into lumber and, and have that be a positive thing in the world. You know, you can do forestry in ways that aren't monstrous. Yeah, and we often don't give people the opportunity to to engage with these these practices that that we all need, you know, to function at least in the in the society that we've built. We, we don't give them the opportunity to engage uh, in that way. You know, you can't just like, well, I'm not going to work if I'm a logger. I, I'm I'm not going to work on any uh, standard commercial timber operations. I'm only going to do selective logging, and I'm only going to do you know, sustainable logging. I mean, that, that sounds great, but it, you know, 
people who, who again, quote unquote, own the land. I mean, uh, they, they, they need to allow that. They need to give people that opportunity or they need to organize and demand it. Um, and it's sort of the, you know, it's kind of the like, <laughs> the like Plato's cave of forest management. You know, we all need to like envision a different, a, a different world, you know, that, that can work for us in order to get there. There's, there's a, uh, a leap of faith that, that needs to happen, I think. Um, and, and there's not a lot of faith in a, what feels like a declining industry and a, you know, climate change and, and all of these things. It was something that we were talking about, you know, when we were talking about doing this episode about, you know, there's all this information about how to do reforestation or, you know, sustainable forestry and all of these different things. But I'm guessing most of you listening don't have even as much access to land as say I do. Right. And, you know, and, and so it can be kind of hopeless thinking like, well, what, what, what do I do about this? And because yeah, most land, most privately owned land is owned by these, well, I don't know this as, as a statistic, but there's certainly a lot of land that is in private hands in this country that is just, you know, resources to extract like things, people who would not be interested in doing this. And that the reason I was thinking about this is, is so useful to talk about, pardon the motorcycle revving its engine outside my <laughs> office. Um, the reason it feels so useful to talk about is because the current situation to me doesn't seem like it's going to stay because we probably as a society are nearing the end of our ability to stick our fingers in our ears about climate change. I'm sure we'll always have, you know, people will, will always have like disaster fatigue where we, it's, it's not like we're suddenly going to wake up one day and everyone's going to realize climate change is real and, you know, have a glorious happy revolution or whatever. But, but things will shift as more and more people like essentially have to come to terms with this. It'll probably shift in bad ways also. But the thing that I, it occurs to me is that it's like these people who own, you know, giant tracts of land and stuff. Um, like some of them are people and some of them are, are people who would see themselves as decent people. And I think that a lot of people who see themselves as decent people are going to start having a different relationship to economic production in the very near future. And maybe some of the other ones who don't want to change, have a change of heart might cease being able to have the physical security necessary to control what happens on their property. Um, you know, it, it's, things are going to change probably. Well, they'll definitely change. It's, I can't tell you how they're going to change. So it, it feels like it's useful to understand all of this stuff and understand the importance of reforestation and all, all of this because, because we might be able to start convincing some of these people that this is what should happen, you know, that, that they should not manage their property the way that they, they currently do at the very least. I don't know. Is there any hope in that? I think, I think that the shift that needs to happen is that we need to think about these things long-term and, and ideally it would be in, in multi-generational cycles, but even thinking about things in terms of, of people's own lifetimes and, and one of the issues with commercial timber management is that it's not even in people's lifetimes or it's not even in the lifetimes of the company. It's, it's quarterly profit returns. It's stock prices. It's all these sort of abstract but very quick return things that just, they don't, there's no way for that to really intersect in a healthy way, no matter what you think about capitalism and the stock market and stuff. And I, I would guess that most people listening to this don't have like super favorable <laughs> views on that, but there's just no way for that, that quick, 
uh, cycle of, of profit returns to, um, to mesh with managing an ecosystem and particularly managing an ecosystem that a, a forest where even in a, a shore-lived forest in some regions, you're talking about trees living 100 years, you know, and then in other areas, 300 years, f- 500 sometimes, you know, so it, it, it just can't, it can't operate that way. And, and a lot of the people that work for these companies are people that have lived in these areas for, for a long time now, right? And, and do feel like they care about the land, and, but also they feel like they care about their communities and they need to provide jobs. And they're just sort of wrapped up in the system. And, and uh, I guess I'll make the forest for the trees puns, right? You know, you can't <laughs> see your way out. You know, it's, the trees are too dense yeah. in, a, in, a, in a tree farm. You need to thin it out a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, uh, sorry for that terrible no, joke. No, no, no. Um, but um, I, I think I think that a lot of more people are reachable than 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 we know, and uh, we need to just talk to each other. and And I think a, a, we all need to sort of meet. I, I don't want to say meet in the middle, but meet in kind of a new place where we're not sort of old school environmentalists and that we see, okay, people, people do bad things to nature. And then we, we need to just stop people from doing the bad things to nature. It's like what new, what new, and then we're not just extractivists, you know, logging everything, mining everything. Well, the economy, you know, jobs, the economy, blah, blah, blah. We need to come to a new place where it's like, how do we develop this relationship that works for us, you know, with each other and with, with nature. And that sounds very kumbaya, but but I, I do think you're right that climate change starts to it starts to force a shift, um, and and even the management of these companies know that. You know, Weyerhaeuser, they're not climate denialists. You know, they they do experiments to see how far north they need to move their tree seedlings. You know, their their stock. You know, do we bring seedlings from from southern Oregon to halfway up Washington? Um, because they're adapted to the hotter climate, they're they're studying all of that stuff. They know it's real, and the people working for them, I think, largely know that it's real too. It, I, it's certainly in the past few years around here, I think, gotten to the point where it's unavoidable. I I work with loggers and farmers and and people that are don't always have the same views as me, um, but that I, I hear a lot less climate denial now than I than I did even five years ago. Uh, we've just had too many extreme events. People, people know it's here, and um, you know, it, and and yeah, a disaster can create an opportunity. We we realize we we need to change, and we need to um, come come to a better system with each other. And and that may, you know, whether you believe in the power of government to change these things or not, it, that can lead to either community solutions, people just demanding better from from the organizations within they work. It, it and also a lot of this stuff could be easily changed in state legislatures um you know they, there's the power in oregon and washington to say no we, we we are going to disincentivize these outside investment groups from owning these forests we're gonna you know lay down a heavy hand and and if you can get local communities of loggers to say that that's that's good and and that's fine instead of kind of these like astroturfed you know timber unity type groups that are really just right-wing you know corporate funded uh hollow entities, you know, if you have actual communities making their voices heard, change feels possible. That idea of like, we have to meet at a a third place is really fascinating to me. You know, um, I remember, well, I don't remember as before my time in in Earth First, but, you know, one of the like 
one of the main stories we we talk about, right, is the story of, um, if you're familiar with Judy Berry, the Earth First organizer who organized loggers, um, and she got mm-hmm. she got bombed for it, right? And, you know, basically, like, she was organizing as an Earth Firster, but very also explicitly as a labor organizer with the IWW, and being like, you know, loggers have one of the most dangerous jobs in the country, and you know, and are by and large people who like the fact that they spend all of their time outdoors, you know, and, and I'm not trying to come by either and, and be like, Oh, well, you know, we will never have to be opposed to the people who are working on resource extraction or whatever. Right. But, but the less we can be the, the better both strategically and ethically. And, and also, I mean, I think that's why Judy Berry got bombed. I personally believe that that was um, by the federal government. I know there was a lawsuit that won proving that um, they at the very least were certainly ready to go to show that, you know, like ready to blame her own assassination on herself, you know, um, and assassination attempt. She survived the bombing, died of cancer a couple of years later. But, you know, like, I think that that actually is what threatens power is when... <laughs> Uh, not to sound Marxist, but like when the working, well, whatever, I'm anarchist, everyone knows that. Um, you know, when, when the working class gets together and it's like, oh, we can actually see past our immediate differences and work together towards a goal, we accomplish an awful lot. And I don't, I don't personally have the first clue about how to do that. And, and maybe you do have more of a first clue because you work, um, I presume your work puts you in touch with both environmentalists and, uh, you know, loggers and, and timber companies and things that are these um, very traditionally at odds organizations. Yeah. So, so my, my current role is, is um, with a land trust. And for those that don't know, basically a land trust in some cases buys property directly or has it donated and then it's put in, in a trust. Um, forever to protect it from development or for restoration or whatever the the threat is, or it'll be a legal entity like a conservation easement um, that it's still owned by someone else, but we have some restrictions on, okay, you can't mine it. You can't put, um, you can't put housing developments on it. Maybe you can still log it though, or maybe there's some restrictions on how that logging happens. Um, And so that allows me to kind of straddle that, that world a little bit. And I've, I've worked in, in many different organizations with many different entities, but um, it, it kind of gives us a, a you know, a, an avenue to interacting with local communities. Like we're not just flying in, you know, by night and, and some people are still pissed at us and that's fine. That's always going to be the case. Um, but we're, we're there more or less permanently. And, and so like it or not, you know, <laughs> we can work together, but also, I mean, you know, yeah, we do. I work with people. I hire farmers for work. I hire loggers for work. We, like, as I mentioned, we, we do, you know, timber production activities. Um, and so being local and kind of leading by example, uh, if you have the opportunity, it has been really valuable. Um, you know, I will say that a lot of times the groups that get cut out of that conversation of what well, we need to work with local communities are indigenous groups. Um, you know, and, and, uh, when, when, indigenous groups are brought in, it's usually tribal governments. And of course, not all tribes are recognized federally. And if they're not federally recognized, they're out of luck. You know, locally, um, we have the Chinook tribe um, fighting for recognition. Um, and 
wanting to be a part of managing lands in in our region um, on the the lower Columbia River and being cut out without funding, without recognition. Um, But other tribes uh, are, and and so they are able to kind of assert themselves. And uh, so I think think this is all true. you know, I don't want to go down the road of romanticizing rural communities because I think that there's a lot that that also needs to change. But um, but there are a lot of people um, in those communities who who yeah absolutely wanted to see a different way. And and like you said, just just like being outside, they like being in the woods, and they they just really care about things. And you know, one of the funniest things to me is that you know um, a lot of like a lot of these these people in in a way that I, I don't it doesn't have any backing in in theory or or in in politics really but like really push back against private ownership you know when we think about like like private property being not just like an absolute thing but a bundle of rights you know i have the right to log this i have the right to access you know all these private timberlands used to be like widely accessible to people in local communities and that especially when there were smaller companies and and so people grew up you know going to places in the coast range and and hunting and fishing and just hanging out and camping. And like, that was their backyards. And then you have the larger companies coming in and being like, well, wait a second, we can, we can charge for permit access, you know, and we can hire our security to control it and we can put up gates on all the roads. And that really pisses people off, you know? And, and I think there's a real organizing opportunity there, you know, to, to someone to, to bridge that gap and be like, yeah, you know, you're right. These, these big private companies really are, you know, taking away something that is not theirs to take away. You know, you, you own it too. And then can we extend this to, okay, but also you own it, but also, you know, there were people here first that also owned it and and still do and have an ownership stake. And, and we can kind of build a new vision of, of, of who owns the land. Yeah. No, it's like, it's like, um, people coming back, just instinctively on some level to the, the idea of the commons, you know, the idea that there's this land where it's, it's okay to like, I'm not encouraging this. I'm just talking about the original commons in England or whatever, but like, it's okay to take some trees every now and then it's okay to forage. It's okay to hunt. It's okay to, to see this as common, a common pool of resources that we all, you know, maintain and draw from. And then the enclosure of the commons, of course, you know, is the, now, now everyone needs permits, you know, and you get all the Robin Hood stuff about, you know, don't go hunt on the king's land or whatever. It's just kind of interesting to watch that. Not the same, but, you know, history doesn't repeat it. Echoes or whatever the rhymes. I think it rhymes. I don't remember what the cliche is. Um, I'll make a new cliche by not knowing the original cliche. Yeah. No, I mean, it's 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 true in that that entity that people are are mad at for for these access issues i mean it's we we have we have just a vision of like here's the tax lots on the map and, and that's who owns it and and it just is is always much more complicated than that and i think we just need to like recognize and, and put that complexity forward maybe in our society in a in a, in a way that that we all kind of know instinctively you know um that it's wrong to just like gate it all off and say it's a private property and you know screw you um and, and, but by reinforcing that sense of ownership too, it makes all this stuff easier. It makes my work easier. And I want to expand that sense of ownership because sometimes the people that are, uh, that are invited into having a say, um, are, are people with, with power in our society. Yeah. Um, 
so the large landowners and the uh, well, we can I think we can build a yeah we can build a different ethic of you know how we uh, interact with with an, um, with with lands with with natural lands. Do people? I mean, I don't know whether you would specifically know, but I wonder if people do guerrilla reforestation. You know, just like going to you know it's a it's a really good question and like i remember um so uh in in uh oregon well and a little bit in washington um i think it was maybe four years ago we had the first big wildfire near portland in a lot of people's lives here um and that was in the columbia river gorge which is uh, like a really beloved place you know it's the columbia river is i'm sure you know of course but like for your listeners who haven't been there, the Columbia River is like carving through the Cascade Mountains. And so it's this massive river and it's easily accessible from, from the city. And so there's lots of hiking and, and a wildfire started there. And, and a lot of people, unlike in other areas of the West, hadn't really experienced wildfire close to the city before. Um, and so there was a lot of like, like real emotional scarring to people about like, we lost this place. Like it's gone, like not knowing what was there yet and it was closed for a couple of years for safety and you know we like a lot of the hiking trails and things are still closed and um a long-winded way to say there were groups popping up i remember on facebook um you know being like i'm starting this group and i'm going to go in and start planting trees who's with me like we need to go plant trees and of course uh people like me were jumping in and saying, well, actually fire is a natural process and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they maybe, like, maybe don't, yeah. you know, like maybe let's give it a second. Like this is actually like the, the gorge probably burned pretty frequently because there were a lot of like village sites and people were there and fires escape anyways, whatever. But, um, but that sentiment was certainly there. So like clearly when people like know and love a place, um, I think that like they can be organized to like do that. You know, because this was a place that held a lot of, like, a really special place in a lot of people's hearts. And so um, the question is, like, a lot of the places that really need reforestation are the super degraded places that no one goes to, you know, that aren't, like, the beautiful mountains. It's, like, the it's like the agricultural pasture that's, like, a little bit degraded and, like, maybe is kind of a problem now. Or, like, just this little strip of land next to the creek, you know. Um, so uh, I would love... I would love to see like that sort of like community response to, to doing that kind of thing. Um, I think it would be like incredibly cool. Um, and I, and in terms of guerrilla efforts, I, I, I think probably the best examples would, would you would find outside of the United States. Um, like I, I am not going to know the name of the village, but I, I have a family friend who, um, is a doctor who spent a lot of time working in, um, uh, in Rwanda, um, for, uh, doctors without borders. Um, and, uh, uh, she met these people that like in this little village, they've started just reforesting like the hillsides next to their town. There were like these landslides happening and they just, then now they've started to got, get like NGO funding and stuff, but they, they started themselves. And I, I really wish I remember the name of this group and, um, and what they were doing, but in the name of the village, but I, I don't know, but I, I think in places without resources and without like, like everything is very codified, you know, here's who owns this land and, and here's who's responsible for it. There, there's been really like beautiful examples of people just taking <laughs> their own hands. And, and this whole village just goes out and plants trees cool. and like the pictures are looking at them. It's like, they're just, they grow them themselves and they're like terracing the hills a little bit to like retain some, some moisture. And, you know, it was, 
it was like to save their land and, and their lives. Like there were, there were these landslides that were threatening them and they just, they just started doing it, you know? Um, and so, so I, I think there's, there's the best examples. You need to look outside of people like me who work for governments and nonprofits and things like that. And, um, and, and look at other parts of the world. So that's a, okay. So the takeaways are, um, planting trees is good. Bringing beavers is good. Plant trees, whether or not you have permission, <laughs> but possibly ideally get actual local expertise about where to plant the trees and what kind of trees to plant and uh, change property relations. Um, yeah, no, no big deal. Damn it. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, no big deal. Yeah. But also, you know, I mean, build your own expertise, right? Like just, if you are interested in a piece of ground and in restoring it, just start going there. Like if there's a Creek in your town, that's kind of abandoned and you know, whatever, like just, just seeing how it behaves for a couple of seasons, um, you can start to build that expertise. Cool. So it's not, it's, it's not that complicated really. Okay. Well, that's, that's probably a good note to end on. Um, do you have, um, for people who didn't listen to the last episode necessarily, do you have, um, any organizations you're excited about shouting out or how people can, can follow you and, and bug you on the internet? Um, yeah, just the same things. I think, um, if for people that are in the, the Portland's Oregon region, um, a great group, if you're interested in planting trees um, to volunteer with or donate to is, um, friends of trees. Um, I don't work for them, uh, but they're, they're excellent. Uh, they plant trees in natural areas and in neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, so you can just Google Friends of Trees Portland and find them. Um, for me, um, nothing to plug, but if you want to find me on Twitter, it's plant underscore warlock. Uh, and if you have general questions about forestry or restoration, I'd be happy to, to get in touch with you. All right. Well, thanks so much for letting us steal even more of your time than originally we planned. Yeah, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I was just basically as soon as we finished the call last time, I was like, no, wait, there's more we want to talk about. Um, because, well, it's such a big issue, um, reforesting the planet to not all die. It seems like an important thing to talk about. And I, I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation Again, well, it's not the same conversation. It's a different conversation. You, I bet everyone really just sticks around to the end in order to hear me ramble. That's like the main thing. But if you want to be able to keep hearing me ramble, then the best way to do it is to tell people about the show. Um, yeah, sure, that works. To help feed the algorithms that run the world and things by, by liking and sharing and subscribing and retweeting and original tweeting and um, Instagram story sharing. And we're on Facebook and Instagram and you know, I'm on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy and I'm also on Patreon. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon, which goes to support all the people who work on this show and all the other stuff that we're really excited to start putting out soon. And I in particular would like to thank Nora and Hoss, the dog, Kirk, Willow, Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, the compound, Kat, Jay, Starro, Mike, Eleanor, Chelsea, Dana, Hugh, and Sean, Thank you so much. And and also, if you want access to the, the patron-only, Patreon-only content, but you don't make as much money as like we make 
if you, whatever, if you're like not doing super well financially, just message me on whatever platform and I'll give you access to all of it for free. We do like a monthly zine that at the moment has been like a zine by me, but soon is going to be a zine, an original zine by someone else. Um, I'm restarting an old publisher called Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness. I'm very excited about it. And we also have a YouTube show now called, get this, it's called Live Like the World is Dying because it's the same show. It's just on YouTube. There's some stuff that like visually makes more sense. That makes more sense visually. I need to eat. Um, So I'm going to be done recording now. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and I hope you're doing great. Mm -hmm.